Hey, everybody, and welcome to Views on View. I'm Ben Hong, a senior front-end engineer on the Montano team at GitLab. And today on the panel, we have Chris Fritz. View Hello! Team, <laughs> View core team docs extraordinaire. And we have Natalia, who's also on the docs team and on the core team as well. Hello. And today our guest is Michelle Senowitz. Hello. Hey folks, I just want to let you know quickly about Netlify. Netlify is a really cool system for hosting what are traditionally known as static sites. However, the real benefit that I've been finding is that I don't have to mess with a back end. I can just set things up. I build the website out. I've been using a system called 11DJS and you just deploy it. And then anything that you have that you want to do, you can do on the front end. So if you want to pull in some kind of database with Firebase or something else, if you want to collect form data, Netlify provides all kinds of services that make it easy to do all that stuff. If you're trying to do serverless, they have a really, really neat serverless setup that will allow you to deploy your websites without having to deploy a backend and it'll do some of the work for you. I just, I just love it. So if you're looking for a way that you can actually deploy a website that only has front-end technology in it, gives you all the tools that you typically need for the back-end without having to actually program the back-end, then give them a try. Go check them out at Netlify.com. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I am a front-end engineer with Vox Media. We are a digital publishing group that powers uh, such websites that your audience may be familiar with, like TheVerge.com, Polygon.com, Vox.com, Recode.net, Curb.com, and Eater.com, among the entire sports blog nation, SBNation.com. Whoa. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so can you, can you tell us a little bit about like, the architecture of like, y- your applications and like, how, how, this, how this works? Like, what, what kind of technologies are you using? As a publishing group, uh, we have a system that we call Chorus. Chorus is an editor for digital publishers. It allows them to log into a system that's specifically built for digital publications. It has features for writing your editorial, serving drafts to an editor. It allows users to search an image database, search a video database to insert images and video. It allows them to decide what will be pull quotes, what will be headlines, what will be subtitles and um, author bylines. It allows them to format tweets when they want to publish an article that will automatically tweet or will post to other social media. It handles a lot of editorial services like two people can, can edit at one time. There is an approval process for editors and the the part, of course, that I work on is our video management system. So all of our digital publishers have teams that create video content, and that video content has to live somewhere. So the video management system allows the video producers to track all of their video content with metadata and, um, let's say, a director, a writer, a personality that's on the video it allows them to decide if the video will play in a YouTube player or will be ported out to Facebook or will be embedded with um, monetization. So it'll have advertisements. And that entire system kind of stands alone 
and integrates with the rest of Chorus, wherein uh, when someone's writing an article and they want to embed a video, they can search for the video that they're looking for and embed it into their article. So, uh, so would you call that like that part of Chorus, like a, a microservice or like a mini application or like? It's a fully fledged, totally separate application, but it is integrated um, mm-hmm. in a way. So users can access their videos from logging into our video management system on their own. And they can do all sorts of video management things there without ever logging into the editor, but they can also access their videos from the editor when creating content for their, um, for their articles. It's like a separate, like a separate (laughs) application from the rest of Google services, but also ties into other Google services. Yes. Yes. That would, that would be a good analogy. Yes. The application that I work on, we call that Chorus Video. Chorus Video. So there's Chorus Editor and Chorus Video, and they integrate in that way. So Chorus Video started out as a, as a Rails app. It's still a Rails app, and it's been around for a couple of years as this Rails app, um, but we did have some need to upgrade the user experience. As any application that starts out small and then scales, you have to meet new needs as as the product grows. Real quick, for those who might not be familiar, you're talking about like Ruby on Rails, uh, like a backend web framework where you know you you write Ruby rather than JavaScript to manage like the backend, and it can also like serve HTML, and you know you can use it completely independent, uh, so that like it doesn't even have to be used with like a front end framework like Vue or something like that. Right. Um, in fact, I would say that Rails in itself is the front-end framework that sits on a Ruby backend. So uh, it's already a templating system, Rails. Mm-hmm. It has its own um, template syntax. It has its own build system. And the build system there is called the asset pipeline. And one of the things about Rails is that it's a very opinionated framework in such that it's not configurable by nature, it is convention-based. So you be able to create an application and build out the front end of this application and everything that becomes your, your end result is highly dependent on where you place things. Sometimes people call this Rails magic. You know, like, oh, it just, it just works. I don't know how it works. Oh, that's, well, that's Rails magic, right? So everything just works out of the box so you can be like super productive. But then when you try to do things, not the Rails way, you know, in quotes, then things get a little bit more difficult to configure. Correct. It is very mysterious how some of those things just work. And uh, as a, I came into front end from, from design, I have a design background and um, working for Vox on this application was my first experience with Rails. And I'm still of the the school of like, I should be able to control how my front end is built. And so I've I've Mm -hmm. never really come to terms with Rails. Like we tolerate each other, but we've never really fallen in love or anything like that. So (laughs) (laughs) You're sort of like roommates that get along okay, but uh, you know, you really wish Rails would do the dishes more often. Yes, exactly that. (laughs) You hit it on the head. So yeah, uh, as we decide that we need to um, scale our user experience, right? what this becomes 
the, I guess the other thing I should mention is that um, Rails being on Ruby is still a CRUD interface. So for people who don't know what CRUD is, it's a create, read, update, delete. And because of its highly opinionated structure, this means that everything that you want to do as, as from the user perspective, everything you want to click on, everything you want to change by its nature in a Rails app requires a page refresh. A you need to submit a form, you need to open, it needs to reload the page or go to a new location. Um, and as the rise of the reactive user experience comes up, this starts to feel really slow. And as we want to redesign things and make them feel faster, what, what had ended up happening was we started adding lots and lots of jQuery to the front end. I've been uh, there. <laughs> lots of everything was an Ajax request. So it didn't take the user away from the screen, but it stored the, the data change. So by Ajax request, do you mean like uh, it's like fetching more data from the API and then like jQuery is like changing something on the page in order to like update the HTML in place rather than doing a page refresh? Exactly. Okay. So we're, we're kind of faking the reactive experience in that way with mm -hmm. the, and, and circumventing how Rails is intended to work, right? Because then we have to access that data with, with the API, right, with the Ajax, to make those changes without submitting them through a page request, through a form submission as we would normally do. So we're mm -hmm. already circumventing all the things that Rails is supposed to make easy for the front end by just overloading it with, with jQuery and Ajax. Uh -huh. And now we want to make it more so. It's, a, it's an issue of scale, right? With when you, especially with with the fact that anytime you want to be able to make that change, you have to service that API request. So, so what, for example, like, you know, where where did you find Rails fighting you a little bit? The most difficult one in the case of our video management system was the the ability to upload a video. Mm -hmm. um, so the upload the file upload process was actually handled with handlebars as like a, there was a plugin, a jQuery plugin for file upload. And we used handlebars in that one space to kind mm -hmm. of give the user the sense of the content changing quickly. Um, things that we wouldn't be able to do with, with rails essentially. Mm -hmm. And then they would kick off a file upload, but they'd have to keep that tab open. They have to keep that URL open for as long as that upload was running. And in the case of, say, a 30-minute video upload, depending on the user's connection speed, they could be waiting 30 minutes for that upload to complete, and they cannot navigate away from the browser tab that they're in. Uh, and this makes for a frustrating user experience for okay, I'm here on the video management application. I want to upload my video. I have to open this in a new tab and I have to remember I cannot close it, right? Yeah, and they, and they can't do anything else. They have to open up a completely new tab in order to do other things on other parts of the app, right? Yes, exactly. And this was a pain point, right? Because you, you want to be able to send an upload and that might take a while, but while it's taking its time, you want to be able to do things like, pause the upload 
We want to be able to do things like, oh, while that video is uploading, let me type in some metadata or description or, um, you know, other things that people could do in the application for a video project that didn't involve like sitting around and watching a progress bar go across the screen. <laughs> and it's something I've noticed when you watch the progress bars, they don't move. They only move when you look away. A watched upload never completes. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the, the key to in improving this user experience and improving, I guess, what you could say the developer experience behind it is to, you know, the, the obvious answer is to make this a reactive JavaScript front end because that's what all the cool kids are doing, right? So we come into this question of how to redesign the user experience and every pain point that's addressed in the design process as they iterate on what, what we want, what the user wants, what makes this easier for the user to, to do their, their work, to not have this open tab that's always uploading something. And the answer comes from the design, right? The design process tells us that we absolutely need a better user experience, a better front end than what we have with Rails and jQuery and this one piece that uses handlebars. <laughs> mm-hmm. So then we come to the question of, well, if we need to be using a reactive front end, what do we use? And how do we implement it? Do we, do we build up an entirely separate app to be the front end and do everything with microservices? And that was an option we explored. And we decided against it for um, time and effort purposes. Mm-hmm. I did a, um, a lot of research. Uh, I tested and prototyped both React and Vue.js. I settled on Vue.js. Maybe we don't need to go into why I settled on Vue.js. I'd actually um, be curious to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, because uh, at what point was Vue was, was it like Vue 2 at this point? Or were you, was it back in like Vue 1? No, it was Vue 2, but it was, I want to say, earlier Vue 2. So this was 2017. 2017 when we were researching and prototyping things. And I learned React. Like I had to go out and learn React and build a prototype in React to decide if React was the thing to use. And then I did that whole prototype. And they put it aside. And then I did the same process with Vue.js. And were you also learning Vue at the time? I had to learn each framework in order to prototype it. I wasn't familiar with any reactive JavaScript frameworks at that point. Wow, that's, that's quite a task. Yeah, that's impressive. What struck me, though, was that for learning React, I took the West Boss React for Beginners course, the whole course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was great. West Boss is great. And I did learn React indeed from taking the course. And I did catapult into building my own prototype right afterwards. But there was something, I, I want to blame it on the syntax, right? <laughs> I want to blame JSX for everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, There's something about, you know, the way that there, the syntax was for building React components um, that took me a long time. And 
learning curve and developer knowledge was part of the criteria to, to make this decision um, was like, if I choose react and we build this in react, how easy will it be for everyone else in the company, anyone else in our engineering department, someone on another team to come into this code base and look at this, look at this bug, look at this issue and say that they can figure it out and that they don't also need to take the West Boss React for Beginners course in order to <laughs> be able to help out on this project. Yeah. And the funny thing was there was no West Boss Vue.js for Beginners course. I couldn't find a, like a fully, at that point, I couldn't find like a fully comprehensive course like that to take for Vue.js. So what I ended up doing was reading a lot of resources and a few video tutorials that I did find at the time. Um, Laracasts uh, has a view to step-by-step that is like really short digestible snippets of video tutorial, which I enjoyed. About the 15th tutorial, they start actually looking at Laravel. But up until that point, it's all Vue.js. And there is no PHP involved at all in the course until you get to that point later on down the road. And so between reading reading resources like Sarah Dresner's uh, series on CSS tricks and reading the, the docs and just going through a few of those tutorials, I picked up on Vue.js so much faster, particularly, I want to say, because of the single file component structure. I will quote Pine Wu here in that um, he said the beauty of the single file component in Vue is that it reads just like a code pen layout. And I felt like I, that was the feeling that I had ever, even before I'd seen Pine Wu speak, that that was it. That as someone who comes from design and, and HTML, CSS, and JavaScript being my bread and butter from the beginning, looking at that was very comforting. <laughs> and it was easy to understand what I was doing much easier to understand what I was doing in a single file component than a JSX style component. And Vue.js gave me that and React did not. So I was more comfortable working with Vue.js and I was able to build my Vue.js prototype twice as fast as my React prototype. Wow, nice. So my judgment call there was we should use Vue.js because you don't have to take a whole course to know how it works. You don't have to take a whole class in order to be able to help out on this project if you're from another team. Yeah, you, you jump into a component file and you think, oh, I, I know this. <laughs> like, here's my CSS and it's just CSS. Here's my HTML. And I can put in any HTML there. And JavaScript, I can put in any JavaScript. Yeah, I had a I had a, a good time uh, building with Vue.js there in that prototype phase, and then it was a matter of does it need to integrate with Rails, and if it does, how does it? Right, because again, we came to that the the first decision was which framework do we use, and then the next decision was how do we implement? Do we build an entire Vue.js front end and turn the entire Rails and Ruby backend into just a series of microservices that crosstalk between two applications? 
or is there like another way to do this? And we explored as a team, we explored both. Um, our backend engineers wrote up a whole two entirely separate engineers wrote up two entirely separate dev plans, what it would take to go microservices route and what it would take to just implement Vue.js on the Rails app that we already have. And either one would have worked, but we decided to go with um, the second option for putting Vue.js onto Rails because of time constraints and resource um, needs that we just didn't have enough people and QA testing and time to go the route of build an entirely separate app and turn the other one into microservices. So now it was a matter of um, what is that process like putting Vue.js into Rails? So I did give a conference talk on this at Google DevFest Florida, and it is on YouTube, like how the code works if you want to do this thing. You might want to put the link to that in the show notes because it's, it's, a, it's a good 20-minute talk. I do talk about like how Rails is a framework and Vue.js is a framework. Rails is a framework that is very opinionated and convention-based and built on Ruby. And Vue.js is configuration-based and is not as opinionated and it's built in Node. So you have to marry these two together and kind of like, find a space to fit your Vue.js front end into that Rails app, that that very opinionated convention structure. So it's a process and it required at the time uh, web the Webpacker gem for Ruby. And a gem, just for people who aren't familiar with Ruby, that's like a package, right? Correct. So where we have the Node uh, package ecosystem, we use Node packages. And uh, for Ruby, they have their own ecosystem and their packages are called gems. And in this case, um, Webpack uh, has like a a wrapper gem for Webpack uh, that's called Webpacker. And you would install the Webpacker gem into your your Rails project. And from there, you'd be able to install um, things that use Webpack. You'd be able to configure an actual package.json file and then you'd be able, you have Webpack configuration capabilities. So the version of Rails that we use, I'm told, and I can't verify this, but I've heard rumor that um, Rails, which uses something called an asset pipeline for building assets, the asset pipeline is going to be deprecated in favor of Webpack in Rails. So there's a chance that that what I've done here and what's in this other conference talk where I talk about the technical details of, of putting your Vue.js application into Rails, it may become deprecated in itself because future versions of Rails may just use Webpack. But in this case, you, you need a Webpacker gem in order to run uh, Webpack. And that gives you the capability of putting these JavaScript frameworks that use Webpack into your very opinionated convention-based Rails app. So what, what additional features does that give you over just using the asset pipeline? The asset pipeline is very specific and it, it doesn't allow you to set up JavaScript in modules like, like ES6 flavored uh, syntax. It, mm. um, so you put your assets here, you put your, your style sheets 
in this asset style sheet folder, you put your partials here, you use a manifest here, and this creates your built asset files, your built JavaScript files, your, your compiled style sheets from SAS. Um, so the asset pipeline is actually requires you to put things in a directory called assets, requires you to separate them based on the type of file that they are, and uh, assumes that in the end, when you build your, your Rails app, that you are anticipating having like one CSS file and one JavaScript file that kind of services your entire application. Mm, so it'll it'll compile your assets, but it doesn't allow you to like reference them as as separate modules, like you were saying. Correct. You know, so like, you can't like import some package, you know, into you know this file, and you know then do cool things like you know async possible and things right. like that. And yep. you can't do single file view components, presumably, because you can't modify that compilation process. It sounds like. Correct. You would not be able to just put in Vue.js single file components in there and, and do the asset pipeline to compile that. Like you would not, I mean, maybe you could, maybe someone has done it. But um, from my standpoint, being the person who never really got along with Rails <laughs> and uh, never, never mastered the conventions. Maybe you could do it, but you'd have to fight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. I, I did not explore trying to, um, shall we say, break into the asset pipeline, especially because in our case, we still needed to maintain some legacy application functionality in Rails. So we actually did need to maintain our asset pipeline as it was while also adding Vue.js to our, to our app and to our build system. So this way made the most sense. And since it worked, we just went with it. Sounds good. Sounds practical. And, and so, like using using Webpacker, you know, you are able to use all of these features. And then, did you start like sprinkling in like a little bit of interactivity into your you know your Rails templates, or did you completely get rid of the templates and then replace all of it with just like the front end handled by Vue, and then Rails is basically just an API. We did both. So as wow. I as I like I said, we kept a lot of our a lot of our legacy space, a lot of what was what was in legacy. Part of this is we have to remember that this is an application that is in use. It's in, it's in heavy use. Like it's used every day by hundreds of people. And they're in a lot of places they're paying customers. Uh, so we have to be aware of who is getting a new user experience for what reason at what stage. So it wasn't like we were going to build the whole thing and just flip the switch and everybody gets, you know, shiny new experience on one day. Um, we did need to consider the rollout process of this change. So, so like we, while migrating, you've got to like still be building new features and fixing bugs and like responding to like things that users need or complain about. Right. That's, that's exactly where it was. You can't uh, just shut down the business and say, we're rewriting the app for a month. <laughs> <laughs> right. You could not do that. There is a very distinct path that we took where once we were able to get Webpacker 
set up and we were able to put VJS as a thing into that, that Rails, so what I'm looking for, that Rails convention of, of directory structure and how all those files need to, to be. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few more considerations about the developer experience that came up. Um, we needed to consider hot reloading for testing and how Webpack handles the assets that are being iterated on when you're running this application locally. But what ultimately came to be was we looked at state management and we looked at being able to determine if a user was going to be a legacy user experience user or a beta user experience user. And we were able to build out a single page application for beta. And we were able to add standalone components, Vue.js components for legacy. And in many cases, we were able to use one component and have it exist in both places. So we would have, so for example, um, the first thing that uh, I rebuilt with Vue.js was our, our navigation. So we called this navigation like the global header. And that global header takes a state that decides if the user is on a legacy or if they're in beta. And if they're in legacy, they, they will see the legacy logo. They will see the legacy title. They will see um, links that take them to the legacy user experience. And if they are in beta, they will see the beta version of all of that. But it's one view, com- view component. And in one case, we use Webpacker then to... Webpacker gives you this, like, what's called a PAX tag. We're able to take that, take a, make a PAX tag that loads just the global header component. And then we can just pop that into our layout file for legacy and put it right above our yield tag that shows the entire front end of the, of the page. Um, and then we're also able to create an app.view component, which is our parent component for all the single page app stuff, which is our beta experience. From there, we can put that same global header component into the app.view component, and it will recognize the state as being the beta state, and it will show all of the beta information on, on the page. So it's one component that we built, but it exists in this kind of duplicitous way, where in one case, it's a standalone component in a Rails page, and in another, it's a child component to our single page app. This is actually great because I was going to ask if you were building an SPA or standalone ap- applications on the page because GitLab is built the second way. And I really like the way you migrated to the beta with SPA because I think we will probably have the same way for GitLab. Because right now we have only some applications and we will need at some point to migrate to SPA. And I really like this approach with like, we have a beta where the header is integrated. I really like this approach. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So 
If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. And how did you, Michelle, like, how did you find this approach? Are there things you would have done differently? Were there any pain points you noticed? This approach was my idea. (laughs) So it was was brilliant, first of all. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) No, I'm just trying to summarize your thoughts. And it's like, so I think think I'm a genius. Perfect. <laughs> no, but, but but really, like I like for like were there some parts of it, you know, e- even if the general approach worked pretty well, were there some aspects that you would have done differently? I guess, you know, in hindsight, it would have been easier to just build out the single page application, even if it was inside of the Rails architecture, and just do that thing that we said we didn't want to do, which was just flip that switch. I did have to jump through a few hoops for supporting state management and user management in the legacy version, things that I didn't need to deal with for the beta version. One of the things I guess I haven't mentioned yet in this is that we also made a move to GraphQL for a lot of our data, but not all of it. So as a in total, um, there's this other backend stuff that's going on to improve our backend systems and our services. So at the same time, there are changes happening with how where the data comes from and how the data is managed. So in many ways, we're also switching, you know, how the data is comes or comes to the front end, where it doesn't just come to the front end from you know, Rails data comes to the front end from GraphQL. So there were some pain points in getting the right data to the right component in our legacy system, which I didn't need to worry about so much when we did the single page app, because everything we did in the single page app just came through GraphQL. But I had to handle cases of data coming through Rails in the single, in the standalone components. So that was one thing I had not foreseen when we made this call. And I could have saved some effort if we didn't go that route at all. These components standalone with Rails data. But at the same time, it was kind of a good exercise. It was good practice for, for our team, especially when deciding how to reformat some of that data to come through GraphQL. Uh, and to say that, like, wow, you know, when we try to pull this data in from Rails. It's not formatted exactly like how we'd want it to be. So the process of trying to put some of that data from Rails into the single standalone components in the legacy part of the application helped to inform how we would format the data that was coming from GraphQL when that data was coming from GraphQL. So it was a bit of a pain point, but it also had a had good turnaround. Like it, it turned out to be a really good thing because of, of how it helped inform um, those changes. Cool. So it, it sounds like you would have mostly done 
the same, but maybe, maybe you would have gone for like a spa and migrated, but, but still done it like pretty gradually where you had like the spa really just be like the single page application really just being a single page and then migrating an entire other page and then an entire other page and doing it one page at a time rather than doing partial pages. Yeah, that could have worked too. That, that could have been less, um, I guess you could say less mental gymnastics on data. Oh, that's not what you were saying? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, that's, I'm agreeing with you in that. Oh, okay. uh, yes, yes, you, you've got it. There, there, there could have been other, other ways to, to roll it out slowly that would have been you know, less mental gymnastics. But overall, I, we were very happy with, with the project and the way it turned out. And we still have legacy screens. Uh, we still have pages that are just kind of admin-based pages that still are 100% Rails with the exception of the, the header, the navigation. But what that means is this, those are screens that are for admins. So not all of our users see those screens and most of them won't see those screens and they don't care so much. Um, so it's, an, it's so, almost like a tech debt project now to, tra- to port those over so that they have the same look and feel as the rest of the application because all of our users now are seeing the beta. Cool. I have a question regarding GraphQL and state management because we're going to speak about state management. So uh, do you use any GraphQL clients on your front end, like Apollo or Relay or something? We are using Apollo. And you still combine it with Vuex, right? Yes. Oh, can you please describe how do you do this? Because it's really interesting. I don't know if I can describe how I do this. (laughs) (laughs) I can totally Uh, fit it. (laughs) <laughs> you, you just go into a flow state and, and it happens. <laughs> uh, I did not work on this project alone. I did have a team. Uh-huh. And, you know, my my part in it, aside from doing the, the initial research and prototyping and decision, I didn't manage a lot of the build out of, of what what it eventually becomes our, our data for, through Apollo, our GraphQL. And then just like... We do use Vuex. Is it Vuex? I never know how to pronounce Vuex. Vuex. Everybody. I say Vuex. <laughs> okay. I, I uh, think most people are saying Vuex, but yeah, both are acceptable. We don't. No one you. really cares. <laughs> this is going to be the great debate that comes up after GIF versus GIF. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not a debate, but I, I won't get into that. <laughs> GIF, right? GIF, of course. Of course, GIF. As far as state management, yes. So we, we bring that data in and we commit of it to the state, right? Because we need to be able to, let's say, for the, for the case of, a, of a, a project that somebody's, one of our users is working on, this is a video project. It has a title. It has people who worked on it. It has what we call mezzanine files, so original video files that have not been, they haven't been transcoded or or flattened or it's like their full weight, full file weight uh, files. You have multiple versions of those mezzanine files because some of them will be uh, edited for different platforms. So you'll have one edit for YouTube and you'll have one edit for Facebook and you'll have one edit for another platform and another. And we have multiple platforms that we manage. So 
you'll have one project and that project will have all sorts of data associated with it for all of these different things, whether that's the location of a file that has been uploaded, which platform and which account belongs to this project. So for instance, if a video project is done by Vox.com, then we need to know uh, that this project is this project belongs to Vox.com. And because this project belongs to Vox.com, it sends to YouTube via the Vox.com YouTube account. It sends to Facebook on the Vox.com Facebook account. It has uh, authentication secrets and all sorts of uh, fun bits of data that we don't necessarily expose on the front end. But we need to be able to say, okay, this this data is here and we need to use it to make certain determinations in the front end of, of what the user will see and what will happen with your file when you click certain buttons. So we get all that data and some of it is stored in the state if we need it. And if we don't need it in the state, we, we mutate it where it is and, and we, we forget about it. So there's lots of things that get stored in the state, and then there's lots of things that don't. And it's very um, regimented as to like what is stored when and why. I have no idea if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm asking because we had this, this similar discussion within GitLab because we also introduced Apollo and we had a discussion about state management. Should we use Vuex or should we rely on Apollo State Manager? And it was really hard to decide. That's why I'm asking for questions somewhere because we decided to use Apollo State Management and we're using it right now. And it's very experimental for us. So we actually didn't find a good way to integrate Apollo with Vuex because as a result, we have data stored in two places, in Apollo Cache and in Vuex. That's why we actually decided to have Apollo State Management, but I'm really interested in different combinations of them. Thank you for answering. You actually answered my question. Wow. See, I am good. <laughs> <laughs> you are. So, Michelle, you mentioned that Vox has obviously all these publications and things. So, do you have like a sort of design system, like component library that Vox sort of shares internally between projects or how, how is that managed? Yes, we have a design system. It's called Resonance. There's been some write-ups about it on the Vox product blog. So uh, if someone wants to know the nitty-gritty details about how we implemented that, that's available for, uh, for read. Resonance is a design system. So it has a has fonts and colors and sizes and rules, but it also is a component library. And the component library part of our design system is built with web components. When I talked about that prototyping project where I built with React and I built with Vue.js, part of the criteria for the prototype was that the framework that we chose had to work well component library with our with our uh, our design system our resonance components the beauty of uh, using a using web components for your design system is that it actually worked with both the same so it was great in react and it was great in view so that was not a deciding factor on the framework choice at all because it could have been either one since the time that we said okay we're going to 
go with Vue.js overall as a recommendation for the framework for our applications. Uh, we have acquired other applications um, within Box that do use React.js, and they also are now using our residence design system component library, which uses all web components. So to the power of web components, you know, we can, we can say that, that this is, this is a framework agnostic concept, <laughs> but it works great with you. Um, yeah. So uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. But what we do is that design system and those web components are a private node package, uh, which is subject to versioning and upgrades of its own. So we do have a system in place for um, capturing different versions and notifying people of breaking changes when a new version comes out. Some of our applications will be on old versions of uh, of our resonance library and some applications will be on newer versions. So we still have to maintain those older versions, but it works really well when we try to, when we try to roll out new features within the design system. And when we, when we upgrade things within the design system that uh, we have the time and space to go back into the consuming application and say, okay, we want to upgrade to the latest version of resonance what are the breaking changes and how does that affect this application before we go ahead and upgrade? And, and is each component versioned individually or do you have like a, a version for like the whole design system in general and then you just bump everything up and you get all the updates to all the components? The versioning is for the whole system in general. Uh, we do have like a, a, a doc site for the, for the design system that gives information on the components that uh, will kind of reiterate a history. So uh, one example is um, we have a, a date picker component and the date picker was maybe added to resonance at version like 0.18, right? But then nobody used it for a while and somebody decided they wanted to try to integrate it into one of their apps and they found a bug and that bug had to be fixed. And the bug fix for that component happened to be at like 1.5. So when 1.5 was released, they could say, okay, this fixes the, this bug with the date picker component. So if you're using date pickers in your consuming app, you can go ahead and upgrade to 1.5 and your date pickers will be fixed. But if you go into the history of the date picker component itself, there's only two changes, 0.18 and 1.5. Whereas there were many changes in between 0.18 and 1.5 that happened to other components, but the history is only written and significant uh, for the version changes that affect that component. Does that make sense? <laughs> I don't know if I can, I don't know if the explaining it provides quite the visual that one needs to understand what, how that works. That made sense to me. Makes sense to me too. Okay, good. <laughs> so I guess in conjunction with that, so is all the CSS then managed at like a global style sheet or uh, has Vox looked into leveraging maybe like scope styles or CSS modules from on the view side? Are you talking about how the how CSS is managed for the design system? Sure, or just within the application, like is it a mix of like a global CSS sheet from Resonance 
and then like some like uh you know other ones as well so the css for resonance um is provided within the node package so it, it it's all part of it so the the css itself is versioned along with the the package itself so we do reference um resonance and there is a piece of that resonance CSS or the resonance package that outputs SAS variables. So when I create a Vue.js component within my app and I want to, say, use pieces of the design system or affect certain things about a component that aren't part of the original system or aren't part of the design system, I'm able to import the vars the sas vars from the package as a scoped in a scoped style tag and then i can play around with it in the style tag of that component as needed which nice. makes it very flexible uh the nice thing about the sas vars is that because they are mixins or or because of the way that they're created as variables and used as mixins when webpack compiles the scope styles when building out the application, um, there's no duplication there. Very cool. That's cool. Is, is there anything else that you think is, is kind of special or, or unique for, for your setup and especially how you're integrating like Vue and Rails that you'd like to share that you think is, is pretty neat that other people could make use of? I don't know if there's anything else to it that makes sense in the abstract. Dealing with the Rails data, when they, with the standalone view components in the Rails app, passing Rails data there, that is the trickiest part, I think, of the whole project. And I really don't know if I could describe how one, how one makes that work. I mean, we made it work, but like I said, mental gymnastics, not something I think I could describe verbally. Definitely mm-hmm. a thing I'd have to like show somebody a piece of code. I are there have are, code you have, like pen. blog posts or something like that? I don't. <laughs> I I want to uh, get to that point. I really do. I actually mm-hmm. have a ticket in my next sprint where I have to write a blog post for for something that I added to our our process. But um, Vox product blog talks a lot about the things that we've done with. With our with our apps and our design system, and our our use of Vue.js, no one I don't know that anybody has written anything about Vue.js in Rails. Certainly, nothing as comprehensive as that one talk I gave that's on YouTube. Uh, but yeah, I should probably start blogging at some point. <laughs> so if people Google that Vox product blog, and that's Vox, right? Correct. Great. You can Google the Vox product blog, or you can go to YouTube and search for Michelle Sinowix, and you'll find my shifting to view uh, talk from Google DevFest. Yeah, and, and you'll have to look at the episode uh, description to see how to spell that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll be including the, the video in the show notes for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This well, the last name is is always fun because the um, you know I have become a master of spelling my last name over the phone phonetically for people who can't understand when I say C, I may have to say C as in cat, Y, N as in Nancy, O, W, I, 
C as in cat, Z as in zebra. And now whenever I call customer service or new doctor's office to make an appointment, I always have to spell the last name that way phonetically. And then I moved to Florida and now I live on a street called Blue Hydrangea. And I I'm can't so tell sorry. you how much fun it is to spell Hydrangea. <laughs> <laughs> hydrangea. I don't even know where I would <laughs> Just Google it and Google will correct you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I actually have the same question for... Natalia, is there anything that, that you can think of, not to put you on the spot, and it's okay if you can't think of anything right now, where you're using Rails and Vue together that is you know, you know, different from one of the ways that Michelle described and uh, you think people could find it helpful because it works for you? Chris, it's, it's really funny because I'm trying to avoid Rails and working on Rails by any price. I don't want to dive into our Rails part because it's really old. Mm-hmm. And also, I'm trying to focus only on Vue, but we have a really interesting issue. I'm not sure what end-to-end testing is Michelle using, but we are using our stack, and it's Ruby-based end-to-end testing framework with Capybara, and I really hate writing end-to-end tests with it. <laughs> Michelle, by the way, what are you using for end-to-end? It is a mixture. There is our spec in our stack. There is um, like very specific tests for Rails um, and for Ruby that I don't write. Our front-end uh, test for the Vue.js stuff is limited to uh, Vue test utilities and Jest. I have never written a Rails test uh, or Ruby test. I'm, I'm so jealous I, right I now. Think <laughs> <laughs> R-Spec or, or Factory Girl, maybe, is a test framework that exists yeah. mm-hmm. in our stack. I, I think um, Factory Girl is for creating factories. I, I used to do a lot of Rails work. I actually like R-Spec and Capybara. <laughs> Chris, do you want to work for GitLab? We, we can talk about it. We can talk about it afterwards <laughs> if you'd like. <laughs> if, you're looking for, if you're looking for some extra help with something. With R-Spec tests, probably. You probably have people on GitLab who are way better at with, with RSpec than me. Nobody likes RSpec. You're the, the only person who likes it. Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe it's gotten worse. I don't know. Or maybe I, I was just younger in my development career, so I didn't even know what good was. You're young and naive. Yeah. Well, cool. Should we, should we move on to picks? Or actually, before we move on to picks, I, I'd be curious, Michelle, could you tell us how can people find you? on the internet and, you know, find out more about what you're doing at Vox and stuff like that. The only place to find me on the internet is uh, at Michelle Sinowicz on Twitter. And we'll drop that in the show notes so people can know how to spell that as well. Yeah, once you can spell it, I'm, I'm easy to find. I'm not um, like everywhere on social media and it, there's only one Michelle Sinowicz in the world as I've found. So if you do find a Michelle Sinowix on the internet, it's me. And if it's not her, let her know, and she'll take care of the problem. <laughs> there can be only one. Cool. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take-home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, 
And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. Triplebyte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash view. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. So... Natalia, would you like to go first for picks? Yes, and probably I won't be original. My picks for this week is Avengers Endgame. And I won't spoil anything, but if you haven't watched it, you should, because it's, it's an endgame. It's a finish. Oh my gosh. Party. We need to talk ah, about it, Natalia. <laughs> it was your pick, yeah? Uh, yes. Anyways, no. <laughs> okay. I, anyway, we'll talk later. <laughs> okay, that's it. Okay, Ben, what about you? Well, since Natalia took my pick, <laughs> I, got a, I got a book recommendation. Um, just finished a book called Building a Story Brand. And it's a really um, interesting one on sort of the topic of how brands are built and sort of a lot of the fallacies when creating a brand, whether it's for yourself or your company. So if, you know, finding ways to tell your story and learning about that is, you know, interesting to you, definitely uh, check it out. It's by Donald Miller. All right. How about you, Michelle? I also have a book. <laughs> Not much of a fun subject as Avengers Endgame, but this is called Technically Wrong, Sexist Apps, Biased Algorithms, and Other Threats of Toxic Tech by Sarah Wachter Botticher. Botcher. I don't know if I said that right. It's a really good book. It's, it's an easy read, um, but it's fascinating about how web applications and, and phone apps are... Um, make horrible, horrible mistakes based on how they're, how they're designed and how they're trained for machine learning and algorithms. So it's a, it's a really, really um, interesting book. A little infuriating sometimes when you read, you know, the under... That's but some of the case studies are examples. <laughs> yeah, the, under, the angry underbelly of Facebook and Uber. But yeah, it's a, it's a good read. And um, I'm in a, I run a book club and, and we're reading it now. So... It's good stuff. I, I second the recommendation. I actually recommend it at the end of one of my talks. And then I have another book that piggybacks on Technically Wrong, which is Weapons of Math Destruction. So if you did read Technically Wrong or you do read Technically Wrong you, and you like it, you should read Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. I haven't read that one, so I'll have to check it out. Adding these to my Kindle list. Cool. And then my picks today are first Star Trek Deep Space Nine. This is not new, but it's something that I've been rewatching <laughs> occasionally lately. And for me, like this, this is actually my favorite Star Trek series. And it was like a lot of Star Trek series, like a big part of my childhood. And I, I found like a lot of role models in this series. And it's unlike any other Star Trek series, it's there's a lot more like politics and relationships that are really interesting. I can't recommend that enough, especially if you've never checked out Star Trek before. I'd say definitely check it out. And you can probably skip a lot of episodes, uh, especially in the first season. And, and I'll actually drop a link to a skippable list in the show notes uh, in case you you just want the the really good stuff. My second pick is 
the DBT skills training manual. Uh, DBT stands for dialectical behavioral therapy. And for anyone that sometimes struggles with emotion regulation, as many humans do, I find it, there's a lot of stuff in here that's, that's really, really, really useful. Yeah. I mean, not only like when you're feeling, you know, really overwhelmed with emotion, but just like dealing with emotion long-term and it's, it's so practical. Like a lot of therapies, you know, can be a little bit more like higher level and, you know, more about like analyzing, you know, traumas in your childhood. And it's a, it's a little bit harder to get results, but with these, like with these skills, like you can, you can start seeing results right away. It's, it's really nice. Uh, and you can also find uh, therapists that specialize in dialectal behavioral therapy uh, if you know you check it out and you find it really useful. And my final pick is I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, but reading to like your partners, like a lot of people read to their their children, and that's like a fun bonding activity. But like reading to your partners is something that can also be really fun. And especially if you have like a theater background like me and you enjoy making voices sometimes, it can be so much fun. And if you're looking for like a good book to start off reading to a partner, I would recommend Ted Chang's Stories of Your Life and Others. Although I might skip the first story and start with the second one because I don't like the first story as much, but all the others are pretty good. It's really, really great speculative fiction and it's short stories. So it's, it's not a big commitment. You know, you're not asking your partner uh, hey, do you mind if we like like read a whole novel together? You know, you could instead of read a short story and maybe like split it out into like, you know, two or three different sessions. The important question is, do you do sound effects, Chris? Of course. <laughs> uh, you, you've met me. I mean, I do sound effects for my own life. <laughs> this reminds me of, of a book I read to my, ch- my daughter last night, or my children have both read it, but uh, it's called the, the Book with No Pictures. Mm-hmm. But that's the name of it, the book with no pictures. It's actually written by BJ Novak. Which yes, really, I heard about that one. Which surprised me when my kids brought it home. Like, you have a book written by BJ Novak in your that's, backpack? What isn't, is- isn't that like BJ Novak on The Office? Doesn't he play? Yes. yes. Ryan yeah. the Temp. Ryan, yeah. Ryan the Temp. <laughs> oh, no, the intern. Wait, was he the Temp or the intern? He's a Temp. Yeah, I think he is a Temp. But yeah, yeah it's. I mean, it's a kid's book, but it's... The whole point of this book is is that it that you whoever's reading it out loud is stuck reading it out loud and then it gets really weird to read and it makes all it has like all sorts of like words that aren't words and sounds that aren't words that you you are clearly stuck reading because you're reading this book. It's very funny. That's that's funny. I'll have to check that out. Would would I also enjoy it as an adult or? If you were reading it to your partner, you'd you'd have a yeah. good laugh. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Well, that, that's good. That's a good recommendation then. Okay. Ben, how would you like to take us out today? You can say no. Because <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, I think I'm going to let you take us out today, Chris. <laughs> I think okay. Yep. Well then, thank you everyone for joining us this week on Views and View. And until next week, enjoy the view. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.